created live on Fireside. Oh, what a privilege. That lovely soundtrack, which is a modern version of Chariots of Fire. <laughs> what do I know? Ladies and gentlemen, if you've just tuned into the live stream, this is Doing It Sober live from Southern Africa. My name is Chris Nell. While I'm uh, inviting our guest here, allow me the opportunity uh, when we uh, get uh, the opportunity to do so as more guests start to pile in. Please do have some guests uh, questions for us. If there's anything that uh, you perhaps would like to know, something that you'd be uncertain of, floor is entirely yours. And without even second guessing, Darren Reed has just arrived for our show. Darren, welcome to you. Thank you, and good afternoon. As we mentioned when we marketed this podcast earlier on uh, during the course of the preceding week, early recovery is like being a fish out of water. All the sense of a human is, or the senses, I should say, of a human, is peaked almost to the brim of the sound barrier. As such, a race of thoughts at a speed of a million miles per hour and interactions begin to become a lot more alarming, as well as those billion questions which sprout like unwanted weeds from the grass. The way in which the compass has to point true north from here on may require a great amount of actual guidance as well as true mentorship, and evenly a balance of sympathy and true love. Our guest for this week, Darren Reed, has been brought in to provide some oversight on early recovery. Darren, in so many words, embodied spiritual bankruptcy and has been through the ringer many, many times until embodying surrendering to the disease. And now he spends his time extensively talking on recovery by the dozen through many treatment centers and even throughout the state of Minnesota. And he's here on DIS Live, and we're happy to have him tell his story. Darren, again, welcome. And uh, to mark this occasion, it's recovery month. And... So this must be a, an absolute big privilege for you to uh, tell your story on such a momentous month. Thank you, Chris, for that introduction. And yes, uh, happy recovery month to everyone. And it is a, a month that we should all take to uh, celebrate recovery, celebrate the successes, and create awareness that recovery works. And recovery is amazing. And as you mentioned today, I'd like to talk about navigating early recovery, um, what has worked for me. And, you know, I'd like to start by explaining that I'm going to share what, what I have found through a lot of trial and error, what has worked for me. And by no means do I, I state that this is something that everyone has to do. I definitely believe recovery is as unique as each person is. Uh, it's, it can be personalized. Um, you know, so these are just the things that have worked for me. But yes, this is, uh, recovery is di different for everyone. It's going to look different for everyone. Uh, I'd like to begin before I talk about the early stages of recovery. I'd like to talk a little bit about the root causes of addiction as how I went through it, just because I think it will play into um, some of the things that I do today. Sure, because I believe a lot of people have a misconception about the origins of addiction, and I'll tell you for why. Um, you know the words as well as I, peer pressure. There's this silly notion that 
alcohol and drug usage begins with peer pressure, but that is like just a small little 99th percentile. And what do you think, in your experience especially, does the origin of addiction begin with? Yeah, that's a really great segue for that. It, it, you would think I'd ask you to say that because that leads me into really what I wanted to start with, which is, and those of us in recovery have pretty much all got to recovery by the same route, by hitting rock bottom. How we got to rock bottom is probably pretty similar. Um, we all had our own issues happen that got us to that rock bottom. But I really think the key to finding lasting recovery in our lives is identify why we started in the first place. And for many of us, it is pain. It could be trauma, could be PTSD, mental illness, loneliness, injuries, etc. But this pain causes an emptiness inside us that is so vast so bleak that we feel hopeless. Then one day we find drugs or alcohol and everything changes. Oh, does it? And not usually in a good way, but (laughs) as we know, and as you mentioned, sometimes there is peer pressure. So as a young child, that might be how we first experience it, but it really wasn't the peer pressure that caused us to go down the path of addiction. It was the fact that we had an emptiness inside and that when we had that first drink or that first use of drugs, it was like, oh yes, this is what I've been waiting for my whole life. And we move on from there. So certainly peer pressure can be part of it, but it's really what we were lacking at the moment and how alcohol or drugs filled that void that maybe we didn't even know we had. And then we start moving forward from there. And, you know, honestly, for me, it wasn't always that way. I started out with a very normal life. I had two loving parents, grew up in a great small town in northern Minnesota, had a lot of friends. In fact, really for me in early elementary school, that was the only thing I cared about was talking with my friends, playing sports and outdoor activities. Uh, I excelled at sports as a young kid. I was always one of the first kids chosen to be on sports teams. Um, I was really outgoing, probably too much because I would get myself in trouble by talking too much in classrooms, uh, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Guilty. And, And quite honestly, I struggled in the classroom, probably because I had undiagnosed ADHD, uh, of course, that wasn't something that was really talked about in the early 80s. Um, Not at all. But I definitely had that. Uh, and my grades were quite poor, but I honestly didn't care. Like many young kids, I truly believed that someday I'd be playing in the NFL or the NBA or some professional sports. Uh, so what did I need school for? And, <laughs> you know, of course, that wasn't going to come true, but I didn't know that. Uh, in, sixth, <laughs> in sixth grade... One day I heard that one of the classroom teachers used me as an example of why education is so important. He told this class that if they didn't work hard on their studies, they would end up sounding like me, Darren Reed. And he said, I quote, that kid sounds like a Neanderthal. When When I heard that from my classmates at recess, I felt humiliated. I was crushed. But 
you know, always wanting to look cool, I pretended not to be hurt. And privately, I, I thought it was true. And that was kind of my existence. I believed I was not set out to be a very good student, but it didn't matter because sports were all that mattered. And then I went off into junior high school, uh, and things started to change right away. Uh, I was no longer the best athlete. In fact, I was lucky to just be average. I was still a poor student. And now that I no longer felt like I was an athlete, I didn't identify as an athlete, I started to lack identity. I didn't, didn't really know, you know, my place in the world. Who was I? How was I going to fit in? What group was I going to be part of? Identity was really important to me. I felt constant anxiety about my self-worth. Mm. A combination of untreated anxiety, ADHD, and lacking identity really left me feeling empty. And that's when I found alcohol. Kind of like how I said when I opened. I didn't know I had it, but once I found alcohol, it numbed that anxiety. It quieted that ADHD in my mind. And I found I was the life of the party. I made people laugh. I liked that. And that became my identity. And for the next few years, that was all I cared about. As I mentioned early on, I at one time loved sports and outdoors activities, but slowly those things took a backseat to just obsessing about alcohol. And of course, we... We know that the stages of addiction move at different speeds uh, for everyone. Just like recovery is unique, the speed of which addiction takes hold are different for everyone. But for me, they went fast, very fast. Because for me, finally, I was feeling good when I would drink alcohol. I felt normal. I felt popular. Maybe people were laughing at me instead of with me, but I didn't recognize the difference. I felt that was the thing to do so I used alcohol constantly. And, you know, a little bit of science, you know, my attempt at science anyways, is, you know, at this time during the stages of addiction, our brains were changing. And they stop or they slow down the production of those normal feel-good chemicals, which are meant and needed for us to feel good, because we're putting in drugs and alcohol. You know, I didn't know that. All only thing I knew is it was making me feel great. But of course, as I continued to drink through high school and into college, I became addicted to alcohol. And at that point, my brain finally said, you know what? If you're going to put these chemicals in your brain, you know, we don't need to. And it stops. And this is what all alcoholics and drug addicts recognize. Because at this point, we have to use just to feel normal. It's no longer about getting high. It's using just to feel normal. Absolutely and that is our existence. That's our painful existence every day. We become empty shells of ourselves. And as you mentioned in the beginning, I was spiritually bankrupt. Now the good news is recovery. And as we talked about you know, recovery works. It's recovery month. It's the greatest thing. It does work. It's powerful. And, you know, this is the way out. For many people, we find recovery in different ways. For some people, 
it's, you know, their own choice. They just realize, they recognize it, and they want it themselves. Others, they have people in their lives that push them into it, saying, you need to do this or else. True. And in some cases, the ju- the judicial system gets involved and says, <laughs> you're going to treatment, and you are not going to drink, and we're going to monitor you. So there's a lot of different ways. But in any way we hit recovery, that early recovery is difficult. And that's why it's important to talk about this. Navigating recovery is one of the most important things we're going to do. And absolutely, unfortunately, we don't get a roadmap for that. We know when we're in high school, we don't learn about what happens if you become addicted. We are left to figure this out ourselves. And certainly there's help along the way, but we're not always open to receiving that help. Sometimes people want to do it themselves. And as I mentioned, that early period is so difficult. And almost all relapses that happen occur within the first 90 days of when a person starts their recovery journey. So 90 days from day one, that's that time period that we know is so challenging. And of course, early recovery can be defined in a different period. But for our purposes today, I'd like to talk about those first 90 days and what we can do and what it basically is going to leave us with the foundation of what we're going to do after that period. But those first 90 days are so crucial. Very. And this is due to the fact that in early recovery, we're faced with way more challenges than just behavior change. If it was just as simple as putting the cork in the jug, as we hear often, we'd all do it. <laughs> but of course, it's so much more than behaviors. As I talked about earlier, After years of drug and alcohol use, our brain chemistry is not right. It it does come back with time. It will come back to normal. Mine has. At least I feel it has. Um, (laughs) But initially, we're going to really struggle. We're going to feel miserable physically and mentally because those last stages of addiction, our brain pretty much is not producing those chemicals that normal people get just to feel that homeostasis. It's been shut off and it needs to start acclimating again. Absolutely. And if we don't do something to fill that emptiness, it's going to be really challenging. That emptiness does return. And with it, emotions and feelings that we haven't felt in years. And drugs. Absolutely. All of a sudden, people, I've talked to so many people in early recovery, and that's one of the first things they talk about is, where did all these feelings come from? How do I deal with these? And honestly, without a healthy program of recovery, that's when we struggle and we might return to that one thing we know, which is alcohol or drugs to mask those feelings that we don't like to feel. And that's why it's important to immediately, from day one, be working on creating a healthy recovery. True. Absolutely. Darren, uh, I wanted to say something. And this, this I mean lightheartedly. Isn't it surprising to you that, just a quick question on that, how long have you been sober now, sir? I've been so almost 14 years. It'll be 14 years this month. Great, Scott. Congratulations. Thank but you isn't it surprising much. to you in your journey of over 14 years that you've had the opportunity to speak at treatment centers, rub shoulders with other recovery advocates like you and I, and Danny as well, who's operating the board for this episode? Aren't you surprised that a lot of us 
can't stop talking. At this point, no, I'm not too surprised anymore. <laughs> I think either you you have it that, or you or you don't. So you kind of go one way or the other. And for me, obviously, it's I. Once I start, I don't stop. No, it's exactly the same for me. It's not a curse. It's a spiritual gift because all of us have, have spiritual gifts, right? And we discover that in our collective journeys, whether it happened in year one, year two, year four, and so on and so on. But I've always said there comes a time, especially when we move into early reco- uh, from early recovery into long-term recovery, or even in the midst of early recovery to mid-recovery, that we have certain strengths. You know this as well as I, the SWOT analysis, strength, weakness, opportunities, threats. That we have certain strengths that come naturally to us, talents, uh, skills that come with the most minimal amount of effort. And using that or being of service, whether it be motivating, whether it be um, talking at treatment centers like what you do, uh, whatsoever the case may be, you start to discover those sides of yourself that you didn't even think you had. And discovering that and being able to put that into good use, really, it, it really does something for a person, I have to say. Absolutely. Absolutely, and you're right. And what, when I first started speaking in treatment centers, the, the amount of honesty and opening up on what this disease looks like, what it can make us do, at first... When I would look back at it, I would think, sometimes afterwards, I would think, I can't believe I said that. <laughs> what are they thinking of me? You know, some of the things we've done. But at the same time, over the years, I would have many people come up after talking and say, wow, when you're talking, now, I only thing I was thinking of was, that was me. That's That was me too. And... And hearing that made me think that, you know, I'm not alone, and which is something I'll talk about in a little bit. But so, yes, it wasn't something I originally thought I would be doing when I, I first started talking. But, you know, as we talked about in the program, you know, sharing our experiences, strengths and hopes, some of that is what will help somebody move forward is hearing other people that are like them. And that's truly what has inspired me to continue with uh, doing this outreach. Sure. Getting to early recovery, because this is something that you specialize in in your talks. What are some of the things that you tell people who are newly sober, or for that fact, sober curious about Mm -hmm. early recovery? What facets? Yes. Uh, Definitely. So for me... I first like to define what I think healthy recovery looks like. To to me, I believe it's uh, quite simple, is that it contains four main components. Home, health, purpose, and community. Those four words are what we should be striving for. And these are things that you know, other people might have already in their lives and are functioning just fine. But for those of us in early recovery, we may be lacking all of them. And that's why we need to look at it. And there's a variety of ways how we can get there. But 
And like the promises that we hear in 12-step meetings, some of these things are going to happen quickly, and some are going to take some time. So it's not something you have to get day one or in your first week. It's something we want to strive for. But I do believe these four words, home, health, purpose, and community, are a good barometer of our recovery. Almost every new recovery I talk with who is struggling in early recovery is missing one or all four of those in their life. And on the conversely, those who have healthy recovery nearly have all four of those in their life and are healthy. So there are some things that have helped me to achieve these pillars as I have moved in my journey. And these are the things I like to share with people that are new to recovery in what that looks like. And they're not really in any particular order because some things you have to work on first, some things take priority. But like to start with going to meetings, getting a mentor, and practicing self-care. And the first one I want to talk about is one that I feel is so important and is probably the most often the culprit for people to try to do it on their own, to try to recover it on their own, and that's meetings. First of all, there's a lot of myths about meetings and some of the things that people talk about. And the myth is a lot of times people think there's only AA or NA or some variety of the 12 steps. And that's not true. There are so many versions of recovery support meetings that are out there that use a variety of different philosophies. So they're not all 12-step based. But even if it's just 12-step in your area or you that's what you're going to go to, a lot of people misinterpret it as a religious program because the word God is used often, or higher power. And sometimes, depending on which meeting a person goes to, they're interchanging a a person that might have had a really horrible experience in religion growing up or at any time in their life. And if they walk into a meeting and everyone's talking about God, they've mentally checked out before they've processed any of it. So there's There's a a lot of... God as we understand him. Yes. And that, that's one of those myths that I'd like to try to change right away is reminding everyone. And the other thing about it is, as we know in those programs, is, or at least with the 12-step program, is the only requirement is the desire to stop drinking or the desire to stop using drugs. The steps are there. They're great. They're there because they work. But the only requirement for attending is the desire to stop using. And so people don't always get that. Or the first time they hear about it, they hear about the fact that they have to admit powerlessness. And they, like you mentioned, some of the sober, curious folks or people that may not think they're powerless, they just have to stop right now. That turns them off. And again, I always redirect them back to that other statement of the only requirement is the desire to stop drinking or using drugs. If your drugs, your choice. And, The other thing about meetings I'd like to talk about is, you know, it's more than just a bunch of people sitting around in a circle or more than, you know, just talking about steps or making amends. It seems like 
the movies and shows, when they talk about recovery groups, they always focus on those things, and that's what everyone thinks it's about. And sure, you know, some of those things are talked about, but the true magic of meetings is the connections you form there. Now you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, having a spiritual connection to another human being is powerful. And honestly, I really struggled with this when I first tried my recovery in 2005, the first time I tried it. I I felt out of place. I, I, like so many others, I felt like I was different, that my situation is so bad or I was so much different than these other folks. We didn't have anything in common. We come from different walks of life. You know, all these things are going through my head. I used to sit in a meeting and mentally think how I was different than every person in the room. But this last time, I knew that I could not go back to the old way. So this time I knew I had to keep going to meetings and wait for something to happen. You know, wait, what that something was, I didn't really know until it happened. And, but it did. And I'd love to share what that was because I think it, it's something that's important in our recovery. And so as I struggled in going to meetings, I got to the point where I, I downloaded a meeting list and I would check out a new meeting, you know, every other day or whatever. And if I, if I didn't like the meeting for whatever reason, I would take a marker to it and be like, cross it off. Like that was my way of saying, you're dead to me now. Goodbye. You're detailed. Yeah. Well, it was just my way again of my, my corrupted thinking of trying to say, you know, I am better than this. Um, but I kept on trying. And then one night I went to a meeting. It was actually a meditation meeting, which meant that the first 15 minutes were in silence where we practice our conscious contact with God as we understand him. And then for the remaining 45 minutes of the group, we shared how meditation helps us in our recovery. I remember at first thinking, if I had known this, I would have never came because meditation was something that was weird to me at that time. And but I thought, you know, Greek. yeah, it absolutely was. I figured I'd fall asleep. Um, <laughs> I didn't. Um, I can't promise it was quality meditation, but I stayed awake. And after we started talking, I remember to this day hearing the greatest and most powerful words I'd ever heard before in my life. And they were mine. Except for I wasn't saying them all loud. Trust me, I didn't have any wisdom to share. These were words I was saying inside. And the words were, me too. Oh my God, me too. I was saying this to something somebody else was saying across the room. That was the first time I had a spiritual connection to another human being. It's something we were taught about. People would talk about that, but I never actually had that. Now all of a sudden it was happening. I was connecting to what this guy was saying. Things that were in his life were in my life. And finally, I real, just like that, it was the epiphany where all of a sudden I am not alone. In fact, this guy is just like me. And after the meeting, I had to go talk to him. 
which is something out of character for me because I was one of these, for me, I would go to meetings just to fill a need, you know, to check off a box. I went to a meeting. I never actually connected with anyone after the meeting. In fact, as soon as it was over, I was one of the first out the door and back home. (laughs) But I went to talk to this guy and told him what it meant to me that what he said. And he he thanked me and said that he invited me out to dinner with him and some of the other guys. In fact, he said that every Thursday night, uh, uh, him and some of the other guys pick a different restaurant and go eat and have some fun. Now, my first thought, honestly, was don't do it. You, d- don't step outside your comfort zone. Go home. <laughs> something was tugging at me. Maybe it was my hunger. Maybe it was my love for food. But I... Ultimately, I think it was just the fact that I finally connected with someone. I'm thinking, okay, I'll go. So we went to dinner that night. Uh, This is when I lived in Mankato, Minnesota. And we went to a restaurant called Grizzlies, which I happen to love. And it was amazing. We had fun. We laughed. We talked some about recovery, but a lot about life, guy things. It was fun. And for the first time in years, I felt human again. And it was amazing. And magic feeling, I'm, I'm guessing. Totally. And so these other guys were in recovery. We talked about things we've done, other places, uh, other meetings that we go to. They invited me to some of their favorite meetings, which was funny because I went to a couple of these meetings with them, and they were meetings I at one time crossed off my list. They were on my naughty list. And now they were great. What I learned from that was that it was really never the meeting. It was always my mindset and where I was at. But by actually getting outside my comfort zone and connecting to others, I found a community and I started to feel those connections and that helped me go down this recovery journey further. It was this, my next thing I want to talk about is a mentor and this is a perfect time because that person I talked to became my sponsor. Wow. He's still my sponsor to this day. Beautiful. And having a sponsor or mentor is integral for our recovery. For those that do not go to the 12-step program, if you try other recovery supports, you know, like I said, there's cog skills, there's uh, smart recovery, celebrate recovery. There's many different versions. And if you choose something else like that, I really recommend getting a recovery coach because having that mentor is so essential because they help us. Well, in, in the 12 steps, of course, they help us work through the steps. But on top of that, it's for me, it's always like having that second opinion on things in my life that might have something to do with recovery or might have an impact on my recovery. And it has helped me so much in my everyday life, but also where I'm at in my recovery. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about some of the things my sponsor helped me with that I would have never known without having a sponsor in just a moment here. But I'll take a moment to see if you have any questions, because like you mentioned, I might just talk the rest of the no, time no, here. No, 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 no. Everything is freewheeling. What I love about the way that you're expressing yourself is you've accrued a lot of knowledge, but you remain humble at the same time. And it reminds me, I was in an AA meeting the one day, and a gentleman was speaking. Look, he can quote the big book left, right, and center, chapter, verse, and page. 
even index and appendix. And he said, you know what? Uh, uh, my sponsor had said to me, quoting his words, that you're quite a smart man, insert name, that telling the story. Of course, you have a lot of degrees that you gained at university. But degrees also come on thermometers, and you know where they stick those, don't they? <laughs> I, I, I love that, and I'll have to remember that one. Uh, so, with after getting my sponsor, he helped me through so many other things. A lot of the pieces that I needed in to continue building on what I see as a healthy recovery, my home health purpose in community and home is something I really want to talk about too for early recovery because I again feel like this can be a really hard part for many people on day one uh, home of course is more than a place than that we live this home should provide security stability and is supportive to recovery doesn't mean it has to be a nice mansion, castle, or anything like that, but it needs to be somewhere where you feel safe and secure and supportive in your recovery journey. A person who leaves treatment or perhaps detox or wherever, whenever they started their recovery journey and they're living on someone's couch, maybe that's all they have at the point, but that is really not a secure environment. That is not stability. Having that constant Fear and concern of where you're going to stay adds even more to that already difficult road of recovery. Sometimes that has to happen, but that's one one example. Because as I mentioned, it's not always easy, and it's often overlooked. But it is essential to recovery. Another, another huge barrier that I faced in my life, and I know many others have, is that a lot of us have to start our recovery journey with a significant other who is still angry and hostile towards them for all that has happened. Oh, that's a tricky one, yeah. It is. When I first went to treatment the first time, when I first tried my hand at recovery, it was 2005. I went to Hazelden in Center City, Minnesota, one of the best treatment centers in the world. And there I learned so much about the 12 steps, about the recovery process. I learned so much about my past and how it affects me and moving forward. And I was really felt like I was ready to conquer the world when I left because I had these tools, I was ready to go. But I had a, a then wife who at home still was just seething at all the things that I had done. And it was a constant battle every time I was on the phone. My counselor tried to talk with her to encourage her to go to the family session, but she denied. She said, this was all a Darren issue. This is a moral failure on his part. This is a character issue. He needs to fix this. I am not, this is not my problem. And I remember when I was leaving Hazelden, I'll never forget these words my counselor said to me. He looked at me and he said, Darren, there's a good chance in your near future you're going to have to decide of whether you want to stay sober or stay married. Because he knew what I was going home to. And uh, Tough question. It is. But being the person I was, I thought I can handle anything. <laughs> you know, that grandiose thinking doesn't leave us immediately. And I figured <laughs> yeah. I can do both. And... I was wrong. 
the moment she picked me up at the treatment center to drive me home, it was constant fighting all the way home and shaming and uh, demeaning me and the recovery process and it was constant fighting. There was, it was impossible to focus on recovery because every day I was still trying to patch up things that had happened. And don't get me wrong, I know that there were parts in our marriage that were my fault. But at the place where I was in recovery and at a place a lot of these people are when they first leave, they need to be able to continue working on their stages of recovery, whether it's the steps or where they're at, without having to constantly defend themselves and defend the recovery process. Amends take time. I was She expected me to be saying, doing my amends 100% day one. And my mind wasn't clear enough to do that yet. I wasn't ready to do that. And that was a huge struggle. Let me guess she was an army. I She actually had her own substance use issues, but she never identified them as that. She just figured since she was, she was different. And I don't want to take her inventory, so I'll just leave it as that and say that this is a real issue that a lot of folks have when they leave treatment center is going home. And again... This is not trying to shift the blame. A lot of these things we do as addicts and alcoholics, there's not, I'm not trying to say I didn't deserve to have some, to make amends and to, and to go over these things. It's just that immediately a person needs to be able to heal and recover without being in that fight. And some people, the others go home to a, a place where people they live with are actually using drugs or alcohol. Or their neighbors, where they're using friends. That's an extremely tough environment. If your friends live right next door and are still using, that's a really big challenge. So that's part of working on that home part of your recovery, making sure you're in a place where you are, you feel like you're secure. You don't feel like you have that pressure to use. You don't have that feel that that pressure that somebody's going to kick you out. That you can just heal. The next, and this is the health. And in active addiction, we neglect both our physical and mental health for years. Maybe for always. Maybe forever. That's not something we always we think about a lot. And for many, mental health, quite honestly, could be one of our root causes for use in the first place. Untreated mental illness for many people is one of the reasons we start using we are excellent at self-medicating. That's what we do. We've learned that in order, in, in, rather than deal with these emotions, these feelings that are on us, we can just drink and shut them off. So we've become used to that. So if now in recovery, if we hurt physically or mentally, we may be inclined to go back to that easy fix. So I always tell people, take care of your health, both physically and mentally. Check in with your doctor so that you're taking care of that. Next is purpose. And this is one of my, if there's a favorite thing to talk about in early recovery, it's finding your purpose. I now have purpose in my life, but I didn't always, even in early recovery. In addiction, I definitely didn't, but... Even in early recovery, I felt like I was still missing something. I was sober. I was going to meetings, but I just felt like I was missing something. 
And, and we all need purpose. And in early recovery, this is so important because we feel hopeless and we don't see a reason to go on in recovery. Again, when I talk to people that are struggling in early recovery, people that are new to the meetings I go to, or people that have reached out for help and want me to mentor them and talk with them, one of the first things they say is, recovery has been boring to me. And I get that because we become boring. It's not that recovery is boring. It's the fact that we stop doing the things that we've done. And it's, it's funny because that's what we, in active addiction, the only thing we do is drink or use drugs. That is our life. And sure, we might, you know, do things while we're doing it, but our whole life, don't get our, don't kid ourselves, is all about drugs and alcohol. And so when we stop using drugs and alcohol, we often feel like we just isolate ourselves in our homes. And yes, that is boring. <laughs> but that's not recovery's fault. That is because we are just isolating ourselves in our house. We are not doing anything. And I definitely can identify with this. I felt that way in early recovery. As I said, I was getting to meetings, but I still felt like I was missing something in life. My sponsor helped me with this. And this is, if there's no other reason to get a sponsor, this is one because I really believe it saved my life. It saved my recovery because it kept me in recovery, but it also, it just completely transcended my life. My sponsor, he told me about, we were talking about getting out and doing things, finding things I enjoy that I could do now. And one of the things Kevin recommended was that I run, go for a run. And I remember at the time thinking, are you crazy? I don't run anymore. In fact, the only time I ever ran was briefly when I was in the army. And despite what a lot of people think about the army, we don't do a lot of running. We do a lot of road marching, a lot of walking, but there wasn't a lot of running. And that was years ago. I, I'm like, I can't run. Plus, Kevin is an ultra runner. Like, he oh runs 100-mile races. So, yeah. yeah. So, when I hear go for a run, I'm thinking there's no way. But I thought, you know what? I did it once. I could try it again. And uh, like I expected, I, I was still not very good at running. I, I was slow. I remember while I was running, I felt like I was dying. <laughs> and I was <laughs> thinking some hateful thoughts towards Kevin. And But when I finished, oh, I felt great. Uh, I have what we, it's, everyone knows this. Even people that aren't running have heard this phrase, the runner's high. That's what I felt right away. Very I felt much. great. And I get that every time after a workout. Yes, any kind of workout, and we feel that great. And what is so amazing, and this is one of the things I was going to talk about with this, is what I learned much, much later, is that, again, to go back to science, science has proven that exercise causes our brain to release those feel-good chemicals. It's actually making us feel good. Yes, the dopamine dump, and we feel great. Um, I didn't know this at the time. I just knew it felt good, and so I thought, you know what, I'll try it again. And the next time I ran, again, I was struggling and I was hating on Kevin. But when I finished, I, I was like, oh, again, the dopamine dump. I felt great. But this time I looked down at my watch and I realized I was like a minute faster. And I thought, oh, that was progress. I'm going to try this again. And it stuck. I started running, you know, maybe every other day. And I set myself a goal, like, I'm going to run a 5K race. 
Uh, I completed that. I probably was last in my age group, but I didn't care because I finished it. Then I moved it up to a, a little bit further distance. And without knowing this was happening, running became a big part of my life and a healthy part of my life. I was gaining new friends that had healthy mindsets and it was helping me both physically and emotionally. It was helping me with the chemicals. And again, remember back in early recovery, that's one of the deficiencies we have is those feelings. So recovery was now being helped by running. And that truly became a hobby for me. I tried many other things. With him, I would go, you know, do kayaking. We'd go golfing. We'd go hiking. We'd do all these different things. And some of them I enjoyed, some of them not so much. But it all gave me an opportunity to try different things to help me have some fun in life. And before long, I realized that recovery really was fun because I was doing these things and I could continue to do them. Whereas before I usually hid in my house and tried to avoid anything in my life. That helped me in so many ways. And as time went on, my career advanced. I was able to continue doing these hobbies, activities. And as my recovery has went on, I no longer have a chance or even time to feel bored. I have so much in my life. Exercise has changed everything. And it's not just exercise. It's self-care. There's so many other things involved. I get massages, something that feels good. I take time out of my day to read books that I enjoy. I go for walks. I, I do, I do some cooking. I do all kinds of different things that I never would have done that helps me feel like I have a purpose in life. And that's a really huge part. In the last piece I want to talk about in navigating recovery and it's the last component of healthy recovery is your community and I touched on this a little bit about going to meetings but I would ask anyone new to recovery is who is your community do you even have one anymore because we that's one of the first things we recognize when we become sober or when we stop using drugs is we realize we don't really have anyone in our lives. Correct. When I was in active addiction, my community was whoever would listen to me at the bar. <laughs> and you know, the barkeep, even the barkeep who probably didn't want to listen to me, but he was paid to. So he had to, and that was my community. And so when I first sobered up, I had no community. I was trying to stay sober, but I, at the first time I didn't go to support meetings. So I didn't have anyone to connect with. And I really was alone. And that's one of the difficult things of for people that want to do this alone without going to meetings. We often talk about connecting with people that are like you. That's why support meetings are so important because that's where we hang out. That's where you're going to find these people. And this community as I mentioned earlier, having when you make those connections with those people in the room, it changes everything in our lives. We no longer feel alone. We feel like we're part of someone. We, we feel like we belong to a group again. And that's a normal part of life for others. In fact, humans, we are social beings. We need healthy connections in our life. 
And those of us in recovery are no different. In fact, we needed it as much because we haven't had them for years. Now, as you mentioned earlier, I can get talking and not even take a breath. So as I finish with talking and see if you have any other questions or if we want to talk about anything else, I want to say one of the last things I think is really important for early recovery is scheduling these activities. Everything from meetings to your your workout times, when you're going to the doctor, when you're going to do the fun things, whether it's going to a movie, hanging out with you know your friends, going for walks. And I think some people think that's silly, but again, I, I've learned from my past that if I leave it to chance, I probably won't go to that meeting. And I probably won't work out because when the evening comes around after a hard day's work, it's easy to think, you know what, I'm feeling tired. I'm going to skip the meeting tonight. And then it becomes two nights and then three nights and pretty soon it's a week. And that in itself can be disaster. But the same, if we leave that the self-care to chance, it doesn't happen. It's something I post about a lot in social media is uh, where's your self-care? Do you schedule it? What is your self-care? Because if we don't have it scheduled, we don't do it. And then we wonder why we feel so stressed. We feel so beat. We feel so, you know, empty on the inside. It's because we're not taking care of ourselves. So we need to schedule this in our life. And again, I, you know, I really can't emphasize enough the importance of going to meetings, getting a sponsor, and practicing self-care and scheduling them within your life. And if we do those things over time, maybe not in that first 90 days, but in time, we achieve those four pillars I was talking about. We end up with a solid home, health, purpose, and community. And before long, we don't even realize that we're doing this on a daily basis. It just becomes our life. I hear you. Well, uh, I would just like to address Mark Cuban. Another good thing about Fireside Chat is uh, mind reading is one of the features because every given time that I was about to ask a question, Darren answers it immediately. Darren, I really want to thank you for providing some insight into early recovery because you can agree with me. Early recovery is exciting but is equally dangerous and it needs to be navigated carefully. Um, as we are in recovery month and then we begin to wind down, and someone would be tuned in into this live stream or they will be listening on demand, what exactly words of advice and motivation would you give them? My words of advice is don't quit before the miracle happens. This is just as uh, simple as that. It, it can seem daunting. It can even seem impossible. And one other plug I'll say for the benefits of exercise in our recovery is something I meant to mention earlier, which is recovery is a process that from day one to day 90 or day 180, we might not see a lot of change in ourselves. So we don't necessarily see the progress, but by doing things healthy for yourself, part of that self-care Every day you feel a little bit better because of just doing any kind of physical activity. You can actually see the progress and 
that little bit of reinforcement is enough to keep you going on that. And if you continue with your program of recovery by going to meetings, talking with your sponsor or your mentor, that miracle is going to happen. And that's so that I end with just please do not quit until that miracle happens because it will happen. And spoken like a true, true, true torch of light in this world. Darren, thank you very, very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I mean, this could have been just a motivational uh, uh, speaking session. And uh, just something for uh, a last one. Do you perhaps seeing yourself going beyond treatment centers and uh, perhaps speaking at, let's say, doing a TEDx in the foreseeable future? Or don't you think that far ahead? Uh, I would love to. Actually, this is probably the favorite thing I do is just using, again, my experience, strength, and hope and what I've learned and share that just to, one, help others realize that they're not alone, that recovery is possible. But maybe my favorite thing I do, uh, for those that follow me on social media, will see that Almost all my workouts and everything I do, I'm usually wearing some kind of sober apparel, something that talks about recovery. <laughs> and, and I know all of them. And I, I do this because I want people to see that recovery isn't dull. It isn't dry. It isn't boring. Most people that see me see me full of life, and I want that image to stay so that others know that recovery is not only possible – but you can have a very happy and successful life in whatever you choose to do. That's it. There we go. Darren Reed was our guest for this week on Doing It Sober Live. And I have to tell you, Darren, a friend of mine lives out in Alexandria, Minnesota, and I just love that Luxembourg, Minnesota accent. So delicate. <laughs> of speech. And uh, to you as well who has joined in, if uh, you have any questions for upcoming episodes, please, you're more than welcome to uh, ask them to our guests. We, in fact, uh, demanded from our guests to more or less build that uh, positive community building. If you missed out on the live stream, do not worry. All these episodes are available on demand on Apple uh, Podcasts and Spotify. And just on a side note, we shall be returning to the live streams only in a period of the next two weeks. I've got a couple things in the pipeline, and Danny is uh, a little bit down for the count, but rest assured... We'll be back, hale and hearty, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, because after all, life is better when you're doing it sober. Darren, thanks again. Look after yourself. Thank you very much for the opportunity. There we go. Bye-bye, everyone. Have a great, great...